Britons are suffering the worst hit to their living standards since the 1950s. The NHS is on its knees. There's a war in Europe and we're still heading towards climate catastrophe. So, in the midst of these crises, what's the emerging consensus in Westminster? Why, of course, it's the need to tackle the scourge of teenagers taking laughing gas in parks. Ash, are you glad, finally, people are waking up to the scourge of teenagers in parks with these little metal canisters? I mean, look, we're going to get into the actual topic, but for me, the funniest thing is that the main justification is, well, you see the little metal canisters everywhere and it's littering and it's like, okay, but so is McDonald's. You're not banning that. Like, that isn't the only response you have as a government to littering. First story. The UK government is on a law and order drive, and in the crosshairs is drugs. This was Rishi Sunak speaking in Essex this morning. The next thing is to have a zero-tolerance approach to all forms of antisocial behaviour, and especially I'm talking about drugs. So what we're going to do is ban nitrous oxide, because I think all of us for far too long have had to walk through places with the canisters and all the rest of it, and that's not acceptable. So we're going to ban nitrous oxide, and we're also going to expand the power of the police to do drug testing on arrest for far more crimes and far more drugs and tackle the scourge of drugs. Thank God we're finally tackling the scourge of laughing gas. This, this word scourge I've heard so many times over the past two days. And the government plan is, of course, to ban nitrous oxide or NOS. That will be under the provisions of the 1971 Misuse of Drugs Act. It would make the possession of NOS a criminal offence. Um, this goes against the advice of the government's own advisory body. They delivered this verdict this month. This was after a full review of the evidence. It's the Advisory Council on the Misuse of Drugs. They say, based on this harms assessment, nitrous oxide should not be subjected to control under the Misuse of Drugs Act 1971 for the following reasons. Level of health and social harms. Current evidence suggests that the health and social harms are not commensurate with control under the Misuse of Drugs Act. They also say, with reference to proportionality of sanctions, the offences under the Misuse of Drugs Act would be disproportionate for the level of harm associated with nitrous oxide and could have significant unintended consequences. Now, that seems quite significant. And then the impact on legitimate uses, they say, control under the Misuse of Drugs Act could produce significant burdens for legitimate medical, industrial, commercial and academic uses. The current scale and number of legitimate uses that stand to be affected is unknown, but is estimated to be large. Um, I understand it's used to whip cream, presumably among other uses. I suppose in the NHS is an obvious example. Um, that advice from the official advisory council was the basis of a question to Sunak from the BBC today. Your expert advisors on drugs say that criminalising the use of nitrous oxide will have, in their words, significant unintended consequences. It risks harming children and empowering criminals. Have you had enough of experts? Right, so on nitrous oxide, you know, I, I saw you guys not aware when I was talking about it, right? I think, quite frankly, you know, I and almost everyone else is just sick of having to deal with nitrous oxide canisters when they're walking through their communities, right? And, you know, it's, it's about being in your community, being in your park, being on your high street, your town centre, and not having to see these things strewn around. Not seeing... I'm just trying to... I'm just trying to answer... No, if you just let me answer the question, that'd be great, right? And it's not just about the littering, but it's about the damage that are being done by the people who are using it. 
right? It's about people throwing them out of their cars. It's about people driving on it. It's about, we talked, you know, your very powerful question earlier about what drugs do more generally. And I think it's important that we have a zero tolerance approach to drugs. And that's why I think it's important um, that we ban nitrous oxide for all the damage that it does. And it's something that I hear repeatedly when I'm out and about around the country from people who say that this thing is a scourge. It's the, as we were talking about, it's the third most taken drug by young people today, right? After cocaine and cannabis that's not good now presumably i i have to assume that laughing gas must be the fifth most taken recreational drug because we should include alcohol and caffeine if we're being serious about this if we're not just being driven by moral panics and that's a point which my colleague ash sarkar made this morning on politics live nos canisters mm. it does not have anywhere near the long-term health effects as consistent alcohol use for instance but with alcohol we trust people to be grown-ups we say we're going to stop kids from buying this and rightly so we're going to have rules which mean if you become disruptive or you pose a danger to yourself and others that's when the state will step in but the rest of the time we'll let you be a grown-up and make your own decisions when it comes to something like nos where you know occasional to moderate use is basically you get a bit giggly for a bit the music sounds weird and then it goes away Genuinely, criminalizing it is only going to uh, affect people who are, you know, tend to be younger, tend to be more working class, tend to be black, why, why tend to be brown. Why do you think corner shops should be selling it? I don't think corner shops, but corner shops sell alcohol. You can regulate the sale of alcohol. So, so As you a society, want this regulated just... rather than banned. Absolutely, that's going to be interesting. So we're going to put tax on it. Great. Why not? Why not? You so you what? you pay you pay tax on alcohol. I didn't realize that was what was her knockout blow. So you want it to be regulated rather than banned, so we can put tax on it. Well, that would be a stupid idea. I, did, I felt like she was sort of she was making an argument for your point, but in the tone of voice of someone who was avidly disagreeing with you. I think what you've got to understand about these conservatives and the people that they're pandering to, who are, prop, who are popping up in the focus groups and going, "Oh, I hate these canisters," is that they don't understand what they're talking about. They hear nos canisters, they hear drugs, they think scary, they think crime, they think ban it. But actually, when you get into the nitty gritty of doing a nos balloon, is that it is far less harmful than drinking, smoking tobacco, many other things that we think that adults should do within the privacy on their own home or within regulated environments. Um, it really is like so very harmless that they give it to pregnant women at the dentists and at the doctors. All right. So all of this stuff of, okay, well, you're risking, uh, you know, spinal paralysis. Well, and there's a tiny handful of cases. And even then I've not seen compelling evidence that it's something which is happening very often. And two, we have no idea what the context of those things are. So we don't know if that was someone doing an os balloon while on ketamine and then falling and really hurting themselves, which I can believe. I can believe resulted in paralysis. But NOS by itself, I mean, it's like they've never been... You know, they've, ne they've never done even the most like, you know, passing bit of research into how this particular psychoactive substance is consumed. Um, and I think because she didn't understand it, she just started harumph and go, at corner shops. Yeah. I mean, at the same place where I can buy Ray and Nephew and peach ice flavored vapes. Yes, I think you should be able to buy NOS canisters. We probably should clarify for um, health and safety purposes. That I'm, I mean, I'm not an expert on this, but I imagine the way they give you laughing gas at the dentist is somewhat different to taking it from a balloon because I've, with the balloon I think it, part of the effect is from how quickly you absorb it all and then you get that sort of like like sort of pulsing that you get in your head which I don't think you get in the dentist right do you know more than me Ash am I being unfair 
Well, look, I've never actually had NOS at the dentist, but when it comes to uh, NOS canisters, yeah, had my fair share, makes the music go a bit glitchy, goes away very, very quickly. Of course, if you're operating heavy machinery or you've got childcare responsibilities or you're trying to work an oven or you're driving a car, that would be a really dangerous thing to do. You should not do NOS in those environments. Of course, you shouldn't drink in lots of those environments either. Um, but as psychoactive substances go, it is really very harmless yeah. i think apparently if you take it over and over and over again and over and over and over again you can get some sort of oxygen limit. but i mean again the, the, the point stands which is that compared to many other things that we consider completely normal and uh you know a positive part of life you know alcohol causes lots of damage but it's actually important to say it also brings a lot of people together it's not just the case that well if you want to be consistent you should also ban alcohol it's like no let, let's recognize sort of the joys that alcohol brings to life and maybe we could have that attitude to other drugs as well, obviously, when taken in moderation. Politicians who ban drugs tend to open themselves up to charges of hypocrisy. This was Michael Gove on the Sophie Ridge show this Sunday. I mean, you've done drugs yourself. You've admitted to taking cocaine on several yes. occasions. Are you really going to give people a quick criminal record for taking laughing gas? Well, we want to make sure that uh, we deal with the scourge. And uh, it, it is the case that uh, we need to be clear that there are types of activity, particularly types of activity, that cause distress to others in public, which are unacceptable. Um, and of course, it's absolutely right that we uphold the law in this case. Yes, the advisory committee were offered their advice, but ultimately, it's ministers who are responsible, and we believe collectively that it is absolutely vital that um, we deal with this scourge. And in the same way, one of the things that we're also doing is making sure that there can be extended drug testing of people who are responsible for criminal and antisocial activity we need to deal with it. Do you not think there is a bit of an issue where people may look at politicians who've taken drugs themselves and thinking, hang on, it's a bit hypocritical? No, I think it's because I've learned. Okay, what have you learned? Uh, that it's a mistake, worse than a mistake, uh, to uh, regard drug taking as somehow acceptable. It's worse than a mistake to regard drug taking as somehow acceptable. It's very politician's answer. I mean, in your life, Michael Gove, did those moments where you took cocaine, was did that add to your to your life? Did that add to your experience of university? Did you meet some interesting people on cocaine? Or is the thing that you regret that you took cocaine and now you're a politician and now you have to sort of put this hat on of, I'm very tough on drugs? And, you know, the, the second seems more plausible to me than the former. Um, Keir Starmer has also had an about face on drugs. This was him speaking last week. We need reform to get more police on the beat, fighting the virus that is antisocial behaviour. Fly tipping, off-road biking in rural areas, drugs. Now, some people call this low level. I do not want to hear those words. There's a family in my constituency. Every night, cannabis smoke creeps in from the street outside into their children's bedroom aged four and six. That's not low level. It's ruining their lives. Fly tipping, off-road biking in rural areas, drugs. Um, very catchy catchphrase there. Three things we really, really do need to get rid of. Um, this was Keir Starmer speaking to Piers Morgan in June 2021. I don't want to labour the point, but now we've established that you told me a whopper about being in the library, Am I right in assuming, from your response, that you have tried drugs, but that you didn't actually like them and didn't want to take them anymore? Piers, we had a good time at university. So that's a yes. We had a good time at university. That's a yes. So <laughs> yeah. You haven't said no. I haven't said no. No denial. We had a good time. 
we got there. That just makes you feel a bit sick watching it. If you remember, that was back in 2021. Keir Starmer was being called boring by the press. So he's implying he takes drugs, getting this huge round of applause from the audience and then looking really smug. Oh, yes, I did take drugs at university, is what his face is saying. Now he wants to be seen as tough on crime. So all of a sudden, anti-drugs, really important. We can't, we can't possibly overstate the significance of cannabis as a scourge on society. Same guy, year and a half in between those moments. Um, Ash, I mean, it's obvious to talk about the hypocrisy of politicians here, but I, uh, it is like the cynicism here is kind of, you know, off the chain, isn't it? This is what you've got to understand about people who are either posh or in power or both. They don't think that the rules which they impose on other people apply to them in the same way. Because when we're talking about drugs policy, what we're really talking about is drugs policy that impacts working class people and particularly working class people of color. So Michael Gove did cocaine. Not only that, his daughter's got a TikTok, which goes by the name of 420 Bando Baby, constantly on there bragging about smoking weed. Now, I think that's perfectly fine. She's a teenager. She's going to experiment. But she's doing so pretty much safe in the knowledge that she's not going to get stopped and searched. She's not going to get picked up by the police. She's not going to be subject to the modern equivalent of antisocial behavior orders, PSPOs. And she's not going to have her life her life choices impacted by it, just like they didn't impact the life chances of her father, who could ascend to the highest uh, echelons of UK politics. Keir Starmer when he's being interviewed by Piers Morgan and the drugs discussion isn't being framed in terms of drugs policy. It's not being framed in terms of what you're saying everyone else has to live by. It's happening within this world of, oh, well, you know, we're all middle class here, aren't we? You know, did you have a good time at university? Be kind of a square if you didn't at least try something. And what this tells us is that there is a reality of decriminalization not under law, but in practice for people who are white and for people who are middle class. They can do what they're saying is a scourge and a virus and totally morally wrong for working class people to do, which is enjoy safe recreational use of drugs because they're able to do it in spaces where they're unlikely to encounter police officers. They're able to do it in spaces where people sort of think the same way about them that they're not the kinds of people who pose a threat to the public. Well, at least not until uh, they join a government and start imposing policy. Now, for working class kids, it's not really about whether this thing they're doing harms themselves or other people, whether the cannabis they're smoking harms them or other people, whether the NOS canisters they're inhaling harm them or other people. It's the fact that their very presence, you know, loitering in all those public parks, it indicates they're already up to no good. And unless they literally look like, you know, a boy's own magazine cover from the 1970s of like mud on the knees and running around with a football, if they're just like hanging out, they're doing the things that teenagers do, you know, maybe they're experimenting with some uh, psychoactive substances, maybe they're just hanging out, and they've got their hoods up. Well, that's scary. You're frightening people. You're making people feel unsafe to, you know, go about their business. So this is totally about class. And the last thing that I kind of want to end on is that there will be lots of people, lots of people on the left who are going to turn around to me and go, oh, Ash, are you saying that people are wrong when they say they don't feel safe in their communities? No, actually, I think that's a really 
very real feeling. I think that people do feel very genuinely and sincerely unsafe. I think that crime is a very big part of it. I think that the, you know, vandalism done to the NHS is another part of it. And I also think this breakdown in community is a part of it. We don't really feel that we live in a society where we can tell people not to do things that bother us. The thing that we want to do is call the police. And I'll give you just like a really micro example of it. In the area where I live is a long, rich history of sound system culture. So it's people predominantly from Caribbean backgrounds set up a sound system, play music, have some drinks, eat some food. And it was happening in a kind of, you know, bit of green nearby. And it was in the afternoon. And then what started going on in this like neighborhood group chat um, is that all the white people started talking about how they were calling the police at that point in the afternoon, not going up to the sound system and going, oh, hey, like, are you guys going to be doing this late? You know, if so, could you turn the volume down like once it gets past 10 p.m. or something? It was preemptively calling the police on a bunch of working class black guys for, you know, running their sound system at 4 p.m., 5 p.m. And I think that obviously that's racist and it's obviously classist. But what does that tell you about how little faith we have in our social bonds, our sense of community, that when you see other people having fun in public, the kinds of people who you deem criminal, maybe make you feel a a bit uncomfortable when you're around them. That instead of going, hmm, let, let me see how reasonable I am about that. Maybe these people aren't that scary after all. You go, I want to bring down the long arm of the law. And that is the instinct that. Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer are appealing to. No, I absolutely agree. I mean, we we talked recently on this show, I think it was with Aaron as my co-host, about some data showing that um, basically young people, their mental health is pretty poor at the moment. And that seems to be very much associated with social media and people not hanging out with each other in real life, right? Because smartphones in, in many cases have sort of replaced IRL, real life interaction. I think a really important story. But then you have people who do hang out you know, when I was a teenager, I used to hang out in well, the, the, the Wanstead Flats was where I used to hang out. It was like, you know, it's just a big bit of grass. We used to have fires on there in the evening. Yeah, sometimes take some drugs, drink booze. You know, that's loitering. That's antisocial behavior. But that was actually a, a very important developmental stage for me, right? So if you're, if you're telling everyone, no, go home, you can't be seen. You're making people feel unsafe and uncomfortable, right? That's, it, 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 it's not just like, it, it's really bad for people's mental health. Like if, if loitering is just, hanging out. It's another word for socializing, for community even. Let's focus on crime though, Ash. You mentioned that sort of crime, how you know it's not something that can be completely ignored. Um, it does matter. Let's look at how big a problem it is. So according to police records, crime is at an all-time high. And that means you'll see scary headlines like this in papers such as the Daily Mail. Crime hits an all-time high as 6.5 million are recorded in just one year, including 2.1 million violent and nearly 200,000 sexual offences. New figures for England and Wales reveal, and you can see that's from October last year, and that's based on home office and police statistics. Um, What's also worrying when you sort of look at it in combination with that is the number of crimes which go unsolved, um, which is enormous. The number that do go solved is is minuscule. So this is from The Telegraph in, again, in October last year, based on that same home office data. Um, So in England, Wales, July 2021 to June 2022, only 3.1% of sexual offences went to charge. Um, That was only 1.5% for rape. So this isn't even being found guilty in course. This is 
a charge, someone who's going to court for this. For theft, it's 4%. For criminal damage and arson, it's 4%. For violence against the person, 5%. Public order offences, 5.8%. Robbery, 6%. Uh, miscellaneous crimes against society, I'm not actually sure what that means. 9.3%. So all of these uh, tiny, tiny figures. It's only once you get to drug offences where it gets up to 20%, which is potentially why they like criminalising it, because they mean, it means that the, the police can get some easy wins and possession of weapons offences. I suppose the reason that always goes to charge is because if you've been found with a weapon, and there's not much else that can happen. Um, so yeah, not looking good. Lots of crime and it's not getting solved. In total, only 5.4% of all crimes resulted in a charge in um, 2021 to 2022. Um, that's down from 15% in 2015. So as I say, all looking pretty bad. Don't leave your houses. However, the Office for National Statistics suggests that just looking at crimes reported is not the best way of, of looking at this. If you just say who phoned up the police and, and, and logged um, uh, a crime with the cops, that's not the best way of looking at trends. Instead, they do an annual survey to ascertain how many crimes people have been victim to or how many crimes they say they've been victim to. And this tells a much more positive story. Um, so you can see here total incidents of crime as reported by people speaking um, to the ONS survey. So as you can see, it rises dramatically during the 1990s. They say that's mainly because of increases in violence, vehicle crime and burglary. So it peaks at 20 million incidents because there's a number of incidents in the thousands. So 20 million um, incidents in around 1995 per year. So it's a lot. Um, and then you can see it just dramatically goes down from there. And now excluding um, fraud and online crimes, um, there's only just above 5 million crimes a year now, according to the ONS. Um, and if you include fraud and computer crimes, it goes up to 10 million. So obviously, if you were a victim to one of those 5 million non-fraud related crimes, um, that would have been upsetting and difficult and you know potentially life-changing for some people. But the story isn't, oh my God, society is completely running out of control. Actually, if you're looking at this in the long durée, um, crime is falling dramatically, as it basically is everywhere um, in, in, the, in sort of the rich democracies. Partly it has a lot to do with the fact that CCTV is everywhere and it's harder to steal cars. Um, because the security systems are much better. But there, there's a huge debate within sociology and social science as to why crime has fallen, but it's unmistakable that it has. Um, one uh, last data point I have to show you, um, and this is less scientific than the previous ones, but it does suggest that Sunak and the Tories potentially don't have the most genuine of concerns um, when it comes to the victims of crime. This is the front page of the Daily Telegraph. Prime Minister targets beggars in crackdown on crime. So we're so concerned about victims of crime that we're cracking down on beggars. Of course, um, this is just one response a government might have to rising homelessness, which has doubled since 2010. Um, Ash, a lot to comment on there. So we've got this, this idea, reported crimes are going up, solved crimes going down, actual crimes going down, and then a government who is targeting beggars. So when you look at how crime features in politics, it's not really about what is being done and to who. It's about how is the figure of the criminal constructed. So something that we've talked a lot about on Navarra Media, we've also done some original reporting on this, is just how few incidents of illegal behavior by landlords get investigated by the police, right? It's literally fewer than five. And we're talking things like illegal evictions, assaults, entering the property when they're not supposed to. Now, that is something that research by Shelter says is really, really common across the private rental sector. 
So you've got this kind of, you know, big, uh, untapped, unexplored well of crime, if you will. But if police don't investigate it, and there's no pressure coming from people who really matter, i.e. the homeowning electorate or uh, politicians, you know, being put on them to do so, then it's not going to happen. We can just sort of safely tuck that away. So you could have an understanding of crime, one which is being talked about a lot, one which really is about the powerful preying on the weak, where yes, you talk about things like burglaries and you talk about things like sexual assault, but you also talk about things like illegal behavior by landlords. Maybe you talk about forms of white collar crime, the forms of crime uh, which rob the treasury of you know millions and if not billions of pounds in tax evasion, right? That could be a real priority. But actually what we know is that HMRC is really, really understaffed. So if you're, you know, a really big corporation, you can get away uh, with forms of tax avoidance, which straddle the legal and the illegal, because the figure of the criminal does not include the posh white guy in a suit. The figure of the criminal does not include the rogue landlord. The figure of the criminal is somebody who is poor, and very often somebody who is racially othered in some way. So someone who's black, someone who's Asian, someone who is from the GRT community. And that is who we're told to be afraid of. And these kinds of people then become hyper visible. So I was a teenager around the same time as you, Michael, and also spent a lot of time just like, you know, in a park loitering as it were. And that was during the time of the whole Tony Blair, Asbo's moral panic. That was around the time period where kids who had hoodies on weren't allowed to go into shopping centers. And the hoodie became this like totally, totally maligned uh, item of clothing. And what it meant is that because you had this certain kind of young person being talked about in conjunction with crime all the time, whether that was violent crime or whether that was intimidating behavior or whether that was uh, taking drugs, it meant that young people who dressed in this way were just subject to constant police harassment, constant dispersal by police. And it was really quite shit. And it's because these people became hyper visible. And I think that this is something, you know, which, which is happening again. We're focusing on the kinds of people who make those who are a little bit more well-to-do feel uncomfortable. So it's the youths who are loitering around public parks. I mean, as a Hussein Kasvani said, like, what are you meant to do in parks? Start a fucking business. Um, or it's the homeless. It's people who literally have no other recourse to keeping themselves alive other than begging on the streets. And those are things which make people feel uncomfortable. They make people feel a little bit like, oh, you're a bit dirty, you're a bit criminal, you're a bit other. And so then what the state does after having created these problems, either through pursuing a moral panic, like with the whole hoodie thing, or through acts of negligence and acts of, you know, utter vandalism against the social safety net, that's how you get homelessness, they then go, okay, we're going to crack down on these kinds of people. So that's how crime features in politics. It's not me saying that, you know, people should just be totally okay with serious youth violence in their area or the fact that you've got such a huge backlog of rape and sexual assault cases. It's saying that, hang on, all of those things are really scary. They do make you feel really unsafe. So why the fuck are you focusing on the NOS canisters? Before we move on, we have just hit 300,000 YouTube subscribers this weekend. 
Um, so thank you so much. We're pretty pleased about it. We do, of course, want to keep reaching a bigger and bigger audience um, with this show. And we are growing at a very steady pace. We're very happy with it. So thank you for all of your support. Um, partly this is down to us going nightly. And you know what I'm going to say, us going nightly is all because of your support. So Navarro Media completely funded by our subscribers, by our supporters. If you are already one of those, thank you so much. And um, you make this all possible. If not, if you're not already a supporter, please do go to navarromedia.com slash support. Um, consider donating the equivalent of one hour's wage a month or whatever you like, one pound, two pound, three pound. Um, it's up to you. Let's go to our next story. Hamza Youssef has been elected as SNP leader in an extraordinarily tight race. After second preferences were distributed, um, Youssef had 52% of the vote with Kate Forbes on 48%. So it's a, 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 a ratio we are now rather familiar with. Um, this was part of Youssef's acceptance speech. To serve my country as First Minister will be the greatest privilege and honour of my life should Parliament decide to elect me as Scotland's next First Minister tomorrow. And just as I will lead the SNP in the interests of all party members, not just those who voted for me, so I will aim to lead Scotland in the interests of all of our citizens, whatever your political allegiance. If elected as your First Minister after tomorrow's vote in Parliament, know that I will be a First Minister for all of Scotland that I will work every minute of every day to earn and to re-earn your respect and your trust. Now he's leader of the SNP. Youssef is set to be elected by MSPs at Holyrood tomorrow, where he'll replace, of course, Nicola Sturgeon. To discuss the meaning of the win, I spoke earlier to Jerry Hassan. He's an academic and columnist at The National. And I began um, by asking Jerry what we should take, um, what interpretation we should have of the, the closeness of the result, 52-48. Does such a tight result leave the SNP a party divided? They are divided on a whole host of things. It's part of it's 16 years into office, um, failures of government, failures of progress and independence, and then there's the nature of Nicola Sturgeon's resignation. Um, in the longer term, it didn't come out of the blue, but in the short term, it came out of the blue. There was no succession planning uh, beforehand, no uh, warning to any of the candidates, no giving a bit of like it's kind of period of exit that was longer to allow people to prepare. So all that created longer term fissures and short term fissures that have, that have resulted in, in a 52-48 and, and a contest that was you know, not a great contest, not about substance, not about the strategic questions the SNP need to face on party government independence. And Hamza Yousaf winning, I mean, presumably that will be a relief to some people. It seems like he's more the continuity candidate. If Kate Forbes had won because of her social conservatism, that could have caused problems with the Greens um, and also problems with some communities in Scotland, of course. I mean, are, are there lots of people breathing a sigh of relief today? Yes, there are people sighing um, quite a bit of relief. Um, I was just speaking to a couple of um, LGBT people in the SNP last night, and they were they were fearful for today fearful for what it said about their party. You know, we can explore the, you know, the extent of the SNP's progressive credentials because that's very much open to doubt. The rhetoric versus um, 16 years in office that, frankly, in lots of ways, it's a very skin, thin, deep, thin um, progressiveness, a bit like, you know, slightly better version of Keir Starmer's Labour. Um, but there are, there's a lot of people saying it's really... But the, a bigger issue is 
that whoever was elected, whether it was Humza who has been elected or Kate Forbes, it looked like and has proven they are elected with a weak mandate, 52-48, with only 70% of the SNP members voted in what is a you know, profoundly consequential election. So that shows there's issues about even the SNP's smaller membership than we thought it was. There, 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 there's inactivism there. Um, and um, But yes, there, there is a relief. There is a, there's a great sigh of relief in some folk. You've said sort of the election was devoid of any sort of serious policy discussion. I mean, what will change um, now that Yusuf, well, I mean, he's, he's about to replace Nicola Sturgeon as, as for First Minister. What will change in Scottish politics? Are there any sort of big policy breaks we should expect? We've had a sort of coming to account. What, what happened with Nicola Sturgeon going was a kind of dam burst um, and all this pent-up frustration um, and uh, anxiety, um, as well as as well as some energy, came out. Um, and a whole host of debates that should have been being had in the SNP have broken out into the public. Um, and so to, to, to a kind of cliched version of this in, the, in large parts of the mainstream commentary, the sole reason Nicola Sturgeon resigned was the gender recognition reform. That's the issue that divide, differentiated the candidates. The SNP is about so much more. Nicola Sturgeon resigning is about so much more. Um, and the SNP are going to have to find a very different kind of leadership under whom they use up um, and a very different substance and way of governing than happened under, under Nicola Sturgeon. And the first thing they have to do, which is which is easier said than done, is changing from what has become presidential politics into a collective team politics. Um, and then from that, it leading on to like trying to do things that move move the record, or move the, what they're doing on um, and addressing some of the areas where they've, you know, dramatically failed, you know, Scotland's drug debts, child poverty is 24% in Scotland, the exact same rate it was when the SNP came into office in 2007. So you know, Scotland likes to think it's a fairer, progressive country, but really um, the indicators tell you something else, basically. And should I take from that that the SNP are likely to focus less on the constitutional question in the coming years? Uh, uh, is Hamza Youssef going to take a step back from Nicola Sturgeon's idea to make the next general election a referendum on independence? That is one of the big questions because there's part of the SNP um, base, both in the party and outside, want want independence to be the mantra every day. You know, it's it's like it's it's a certain version of leftist politics that we know that keeps on banging on about the same thing without having a strategy. So part of the part of the party wants to do that, but there's a way in which to recalibrate independence. You have to you have to kind of take it away, work on it, work out how to be more open, generous, pluralist. Listen to the Scotland uh, yet to be convinced. And I, in in the contest, both Humza and Kate Forbes at points went towards that, but then rode back a bit. And and they were aided in that by Ash Regan be, being the sort of instant independence candidate. They they had differentiation with her. But it will take time because you have to you have to hold on to the base and that passion while at the same time opening up to the voters uh, yet to be convinced. It's it's a tough balancing act, and it actually. It proved beyond Nicola Sturgeon, really, um, in, in her eight years. It seems that probably the next government in Westminster will be a Labour one. Does that also mean that there's going to be a sort of change of pace when it comes to discussion about independence? And potentially, um, Hamza Yousaf's big challenge is going to be, what does he ask for from a Labour government when it comes to sort of further devolution short of independence? The new SNP generation of leaders that's emerging, of which Humza Yousaf and Kate Forbes are part, they've never really known anything but the SNP being the incumbent party and being dominant and kind of sweeping all before it. And and when when the political weather changes, that sort of political 
generation. We've seen, we saw it with New Labour. They, they have trouble often adapting. And, and so, you know, it's not very surprising. The Tory bogeyman in Westminster has proven very useful to SNP politicians and very useful to them seeing how progressive they are and, and you know, not doing that much or not doing as much as many people wanted. And the coming of a Labour government will require a very different um, SNP politics, one which doesn't equate, whatever one thinks of Keir Starmer's Labour, and, you know, there's many, many criticisms there, does not completely equate them with being the same as the Tories because Scotland generally knows the difference between Labour and Tories, i.e. Scotland hasn't voted for the Tories since the 50s. They voted Labour until the 2010s. Um, so there's that. And also that you know, a Labour government may do some decent things on social policy, the economy, um, the democracy of the UK that, that actually most of Scotland thinks it's in the right direction. Probably, I would guess, not far enough. But that will require a different a different SNP um, response. Our next story. We've long known Matt Hancock has an inflated sense of his own self-worth. But this is just ridiculous. So we were, we were wondering, do you have a daily rate at the moment? No, I do. I do, yes. It's 10,000 sterling. Hourly rates... Maybe, I mean, do you have any number in mind that we were thinking? Um, well, it, it, around 1,500. 1,500? 1, yeah. Okay. 1,500. Yeah. Um, man, I wish I had a day rate of 10,000 sterling. Um, I'm not sure if anyone is stupid enough to pay him that, but we'll see. Um, of course, that was Matt Hancock in an interview with Hansung Consulting. They're a South Korean investment firm, although they're not a South Korean investment firm because they are a made-up company. Um, they don't exist. The Sting was a high-profile campaign by, led by donkeys. They set up a website for the fake firm before reaching out to politicians to join their international advisory board. And all the videos we're seeing are people who, who decided to inquire about that role. Also stung was Quasi Kwarteng. We would like to talk about arrangements of fees. I mean, do you have a yeah. daily rate? Yeah, I mean, a, a yearly rate. Yes. I mean, I, I would I would say um, as an MP, obviously I don't need to uh, create, you know, a, a king's ransom. But I'm looking, I would do anything less than for about $10,000 a month. Dollars or pounds? Well, pounds sterling. Sterlings, okay. Pa Ten thousand yeah. pounds a month. Yeah. Okay. That sounds. What, what sort of ballpark are you looking at? Actually, um, you were looking into. I mean, this is just a number that's in yeah. front of me. I put it down in my memo, so I'm just looking into yeah. it. So actually, we were looking into eight thousand to twelve thousand pound a day. Yeah. Okay. Okay. How many days a month is that? Um, I mean, we have six board meetings, but it's just that okay. you know, yeah, there yeah, will be yeah. more, okay. so, more, more days not, back and forth. So Yeah, we're not, not a million miles off. Miles off. Yeah, okay. I mean, eight, eight to 10,000 a day, that's fine. But I'm, I'm, I'm thinking if there are 12 days that I do a year, that's, that's, 12, that's you know, the numbers we can work. We can work with the numbers. But, okay. but yeah, eight, yeah. I mean, it's no wonder he wasn't regular as chancellor because that man was bargaining backwards, right? He said, how much will you accept? 
$10,000. She's like, 10,000 pounds? Yeah, 10,000 pounds, actually. He's like, have some self-worth, Quasi Quarte. He said $10,000 a month. Then she says 8,000 to 12,000 pounds a day. That's significantly more. And then he wangles it down to eight to 10 again. I mean, maybe he's just a very humble guy because he knew that he wrecked the economy in a space of 40 days and now feels that it would be inappropriate for him to be overpaid. I'm not sure. Um, let's take a look now. This is our final clip for you of the stung MPs. It's Graham Brady. He's chairman of the 1922 Committee of Tory MPs. Do you have a daily rate in mind at this case? Um, I, I, I don't know about a daily rate. I suppose seeing your approach and the kind of... Uh, expectations you'd have. I was thinking something like sixty thousand pounds. Sixty thousand. Uh, oh, as an annual rate. Okay, that's you certainly think that's far too cheap. Let me know. Uh, Ash, all of the MPs involved have said, you know, we haven't done anything wrong. No one's suggesting they've broken any rules. Um, it is perfectly legal as an MP to seek outside employment, such as this. It's just embarrassing for them that it was a um, a fake company. And I mean. I suppose it's it's also enjoyable for us that we get the chance to see what these MPs think they're worth. Who, who came across best? Who came across worse? I mean, Matt Hancock has a very inflated sense of his own self-worth. Kwasi Kwarteng seems to have absolutely no idea whatsoever how much his time is worth. <laughs> like Kwasi Kwarteng is like, if I was Chancellor of the Exchequer, I'm like, which number is bigger? I've got a 50-50 chance of getting it right. Take a stab. Um, I mean, I, I think that the individuals look very foolish because what this shows is that they didn't do their due diligence. It was a fake company. And the fact is, is that as much as MPs like to justify their second jobs by saying they're doing work, which is really valuable and enhances public life. I mean, these are just piggies at the trough, really, who will take on absolutely anything so long as they're getting paid. So of course they look foolish. But one of the things that I perhaps disagree uh, with is that people have been calling Matt Hancock and Kwasi Kwarteng and Graham Brady delusional when they say that their time is worth £10,000 a day or £60,000 a year, whatever it is. That is actually kind of the going rate for former ministers when they're doing this sort of consultancy advisory board after dinner speaking circuit kind of work. So if you want to take the example of George Osborne, after he was forced to step down as Chancellor of the Exchequer by Theresa May, he then started doing this whole after dinner speakers thing. And in just one week, he earned nearly £190,000 just giving talks to banks and hedge fund managers. Now, this is something uh, which I said uh, on the BBC earlier and got a bit slapped down. Either you believe that this man is interesting and funny enough that you will pay him tens of thousands of pounds just to hear him give some remarks after dinner, or this is payment for something else and the something else isn't appearing on the invoice, right? It's influence, it's access, it's political connections. So what do you call it when politicians are selling political power and political influence to the highest bidder, particularly those that come from the world of, you know, finance, business, corporations, we call that corruption. So what we've actually seen isn't just a bunch of 
MPs who are making themselves look really silly because we all know that they're complete fucking idiots. What we've seen is this form of corruption which operates within the rules of our parliamentary democracy. They weren't doing anything that was against the rules and it operates in plain sight. Yeah, I think that's the I mean, because the real story here is obviously this company was fake, but there are lots of companies who do pay people this amount of money. And the sad thing is it's probably worth that, right? If, if you can spare 60 grand to have an MP that's basically willing to help you out, make connections with various politicians. I mean, of course, all of these, I'm sure all of these MPs will deny that was ever their plans. Um, although I think Kwasi Kwarteng did suggest he could introduce the person to Boris Johnson. Obviously, Boris Johnson no longer the prime minister. But I, I think Ash has made the point very eloquently that the reason these people get employed is not because people are so desperate to hear the insight they might have at those you know, periodic board meetings, but rather because they think, oh, it's good if we have this person on our payroll because then they can introduce us to people who do actually have power. Um, just because it's related, I can never miss an opportunity to show you this clip. Um, it's a reminder of Matt Hancock's very honourable approach to making money. If you didn't do it for the money, and you did say before you went in that you were going to be making a substantial donation of your fee to charity, yeah. you got paid £330,000, you've kept £310,000 of it. You've only given, or rather, no, £320,000. You've only given £10,000 to mm. two charities, which is a tiny fraction of the fee. So if the money wasn't important to you, why have you held on to most of it? Well, I did absolutely give some of the money to charity. £10,000 yeah, out of £330,000. And, and they're two brilliant charities. No, come on, £10,000. I'm talking about the amount, not the charities. £10,000. If you didn't do it for the money, why not give the money to the causes which need it? I, I said I didn't primarily do it for the money, but also... You know, but if you've I, only I given £10,000 to charity and you've kept 320, yeah. it would seem to most people who can do basic arithmetic that you did do it for the money. And I'm not saying that that's yeah, necessarily I, wrong. I, I, I just want to clear an honest answer for yeah, that. Yeah, that's what I'm giving you. I didn't primarily do it uh, for the money. I primarily did it to try to show who I really but you am. you primarily kept I, the money. I, 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 and I gave a five-figure sum to charity. £10,000 out of 330. Sure, and... You uh, keep skating off it and saying, well, I, a, a substantial sum. Yes, a, a ten, well, it uh, is. Uh, it is, I, you know, I, and I'm really proud of the money that I raised for charity, not, you know, before, and I'll do lots in future. And, you know, I think that it's good giving money to charity. That was the very honourable Matt Hancock reminding us all the very important lesson that it's very good to give money to charity, even if you primarily keep most of the money yourself. Next story. Keir Starmer has tabled a motion to the Labour's ruling executive committee to block Jeremy Corbyn from standing as a Labour MP. This is the proposal. Now, if you've ever been to a Labour Party meeting, you'll recognise this language. So it says, this meeting of the NEC notes. I'm not going to read them all. I'm just going to read number five. That in the 2019 general election, led by Jeremy Corbyn, the Labour Party returned 202 MPs to Parliament, being the lowest number of Labour MPs returned since 1935. And... Number seven, um, the Labour Party is standing with the electorate in the country and its electoral prospects in seats it is required to win in order to secure a parliamentary majority and or win the next election are both significantly diminished should Mr Corbyn be endorsed by the Labour Party as one of its candidates for the next election. So then you get this meeting considers and agrees um, in order to affect the NEC's primary purpose to maximise the Labour Party's prospects of winning the next general election and to avoid any detrimental impact on the Labour Party's standing with the electorate in the country as a whole, the Labour Party's interests and its political interests at the next general election are not well served by Mr Corbyn running as a Labour Party candidate and it's not in the best interest of the Labour Party for it to endorse Mr Corbyn as a Labour Party candidate at the next general election. And then you get this meeting resolves 
um, Mr Corbyn will not be in, endorsed by the NEC as a candidate on behalf of the Labour Party. The General Secretary will write to Mr Corbyn to tell him this immediately. And they say Mr Corbyn remains a member of the Labour Party, but you know he, he cannot stand as an MP. And then you can see here, proposed by Keir Starmer, seconded by Shabana Mahmood. Okay, that motion is going to be put to the NEC on Tuesday. It's expected to pass because Keir Starmer has a majority on the NEC, much luckier than Jeremy Corbyn. Um, Ash... What should we make of this? So the first thing that you should make of it is look for what's not in it. Now, the reason why Jeremy Corbyn still doesn't have the Labour whip, despite being a member of the Labour Party and an MP for Islington North, is supposedly this matter of what he said after the EHRC report into anti-Semitism came out, in which he said that, some of the reports had been exaggerated and the scale of anti-Semitism had been exaggerated for factional gain. Now, that was something which Keir Starmer once upon the time agreed with. He then very much distanced himself from that point of view after he became the Labour leader. Now, since then, Jeremy Corbyn hasn't had the Labour whip, though he has still been voting with the party on most issues. Most people would think if you're a member of a party and you're a sitting MP, and the last 10 general elections, you won as an MP for that party, well, you should be able to stand as that party's candidate in the next general election. That's how it would work for most sane people. But not for Keir Starmer, who still is dedicated uh, wholeheartedly to trying to purge the left from Labour. Right. We've seen that not just with Jeremy Corbyn, we've seen that in terms of what's been going on with the membership. And we've seen it in terms of what's going on in Leicester at the moment, where a disproportionate number of black and Asian MPs have been barred from standing in local elections. Um, I believe it's something like 15 black or Asian councillors have been stopped from standing and just four white councillors have been barred from standing. So this is something which is going on across the party. Now, despite the reason for Jeremy Corbyn having the whip removed was to do with this handling of the anti-Semitism crisis and its you know, various repercussions, that doesn't feature anywhere in this motion being proposed by Keir Starmer. And you've got to ask yourself, why? Why isn't anti-Semitism, which was the biggest story to do with Jeremy Corbyn and Labour and Jeremy Corbyn uh, not having the Labour whip, why isn't that in this motion? Now, you've got, I think, two reasons for that. I think one is that if you only make it about the election loss, that's much harder to legally challenge. That is an indisputable fact. There was an election loss in 2019. So if you make that the reasoning, that's easier to stand up in court. Whereas if you try and make it about anti-Semitism, well, listen, the burden of proof and the standard of evidence and truth-telling in a court of law is really different from what passes for truth in British media, where basically, as long as you keep singing the tune of Jeremy Corbyn's the worst person in the world, no one's going to bother to fact check it. No one's going to bother to say, actually, this allegation that you're making isn't true, or actually, he did apologize for this on this many occasions. You know, a, a court has a much higher uh, standard of evidence. And then the second thing is that if you keep some of these things quite vague and you say, okay, it's about winning elections and we basically hold you responsible for this election loss in 2019, well, the same could apply to lots of other left-wing Labour MPs who step out of line. The same could apply to Diane Abbott if they so chose or 
Andy McDonald or any anyone else who's on the Labour left and was part of the Corbyn project. It keeps those options open. Now, looking at that, you would go, this is really dishonest. This is not fair. It doesn't make sense to say, well, if you're leading the party into a general general election that you lost, you shouldn't be able to stand for your seat again, because that would have excluded Ed Miliband. It would have excluded, uh, you know, Harold Wilson. It would have excluded any number of, you know, Labour figures you care to name, Neil Kinnock. Um, you know, all of these individuals would have been barred by the same logic. So it's applying to Jeremy Corbyn. It's not being done fairly. And the fact that anti-Semitism isn't in there shows you just how unconfident Keir Starmer really is if it came to court and not just the court of public opinion. I mean, that's very well put. We'll be coming back to this story. I'm hoping Jeremy Corbyn stands as an independent because it will certainly make the next election um, a lot more interesting. As I said, I want, I want Labour to be one short of a majority and Jeremy Corbyn to get that one seat. I think that would be some poetic justice. The final story. Ash Sarkar has been doing the Lord's work, calling out the racism, hypocrisy and cruelty of our political class on the BBC's Politics Live. The first spa was with right-wing Labour MP Siobhan McDonough. The context was a discussion about whether Corbyn should be able to restand as a Labour MP. I watch my friend Joan Ryan turn up at her constituency meeting for a no-confidence yeah. uh, motion with um, Iranian state TV filming it from the front row. It was bedlam. What was going on in the Labour Party did not reflect a Labour Party. You've let Angela Smith, you called people that, of colour a funny I, tinge on I this show. You've that I have no... I've been a member of the Labour Party since I was 16 years of age. That period of jo Jeremy Corbyn's leadership presented a Labour Party to me with views that I had never, ever you, heard I'm, before. I'm sorry, if, I'm sorry. If the Labour Party... shocking. If, if the Labour Party was serious Jeremy about Corbyn racism... needs to appreciate that and no, needs to apologise. Wait, 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 if the Labour Party was serious about racism, one, it would actually pick up the phone to Martin Ford Casey when he talks about there being a hierarchy of racism. It would deal with the mistreatment... Of this black and Asian councillors and black happens, and Asian MPs. And three, wait, 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 hang on. I, I did listen to you. And now I'm talking about. comes up well, in the Labour Party, yeah. we try and move the goalposts. We no, no, talk no, this about isn't goalposts. This we is not. We don't deal with Siobhan, the we'll let the fin finish this your... is the issue. Finish your point. I'm talking as a woman of colour who's been on the left for a long time. And I was actually sitting in a seat just like this when Angela Smith turned to me and referred to people of colour as having a funny tinge. It was right here on the show. She's back in the party. How's that for zero tolerance? Now, that to me was a bit like watching the hierarchy of racism sort of in practice lasting about a minute. And it's important to, I suppose, remind the audience, Joan Ryan is not Jewish. She just happened to be chair of Labour Friends of Israel. So what was going on there was you were being accused by Siobhan McDonough of distracting against the racism experienced by a white lady not from an ethnic minority <laughs> to talk about the racism you had experienced as a brown woman. I mean, it really is through the looking glass, isn't it? I mean, I think you can hear my voice crack because it's genuinely upsetting when you're in that situation and you're saying, if you're serious about racism, what about all of these things? We've got this pattern of Black and Asian MPs being treated incredibly badly. Diane Abbott, Absana Begum, Clive Lewis. You've got this pattern of Black and Asian councillors being treated incredibly badly, like what's going on in Leicester right now. And you've also got an example that I've directly experienced where somebody has referred to people of colour by a disparaging term that I've never heard in my life before, who's just been readmitted to the party. 
And instead of that being taken seriously by somebody who claims to be deeply concerned by the culture of the Labour Party, the soul of the Labour Party, the virus of racism, whether it lurks within it, I'm being told this is irrelevant. You're moving the goalposts. Basically, shut up. Unless you're going to totally agree that the worst thing in the world was what happened to Joan Ryan, who, as you correctly point out, isn't even Jewish, then you may as well not be talking. And when you're sitting there, it is really quite hostile um, because the thing you've also got to remember, I was getting it from all sides. So I also had Sebastian Payne, who used to work for the Financial Times, is now the head of a right-wing think tank called Onward, claiming that I don't care about anti-Semitism, I don't care about racism. And again, when I'm trying to say, hang on, this is my vantage point as someone who is a woman of color and on the left, and this is what I'm hearing from other people. Um, this is what I'm hearing from Martin Ford in a report which was commissioned by Keir Starmer. You're just, you're basically, they just shit all over you and they can get away with it because that is broadly in line with what political journalists think the story is. Of course, Sebastian Payne was a political journalist himself. They go, the story is Jeremy Corbyn being an anti-Semite. And if you diverge from that at all, the electric fence goes up. So anytime you try to approach them for a conversation, anytime you kind of go, I don't agree with this thing, the response you get is more and more heightened and hostile and aggressive. And people shout louder and they make out that you've done or you've said something really, really unreasonable. And it doesn't matter if what you're saying is true or if what they're saying is wrong or incorrect on points of fact, that becomes the dominant narrative because it's the one which coheres with what the lobby already think. And I think you just saw that in action. You literally saw that kind of frame by frame, how the media narrative is constructed. Let's go to our next clip. This is Ash debating Tory MP Heather Wheeler on the merits of Suella Braverman's policies with regard to refugees. I think when it comes to this this matter of um, you know fighting off hardliners in her own party, I think that th what that indicates is that the whole asylum issues become this theatre of cruelty, and it's about who can be the nastiest, who can be the cruelest, who can be the most dehumanising, because they're playing to the gallery and public opinion Ash, is being led by hardline papers. And I, I don't said think them they're helpful at all. Well, not, you may not, not think so because all. I'm attacking your party, but. I think they're helpful because they're no, true. No. And when it comes to when it comes to letters that I get from my constituents, they've had enough of this. I'm, they've had enough of the little boats coming in. But you know what? If, 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 you if you talk to if you talk to asylum seekers who fled persecution and now they're scared of going to Rwanda, and on that, that is all we have time for. I was, I was disappointed. That was all you had time for there, Ash. Uh, what you, what was going? You, you were offending her by talking about how it's <laughs> potentially offensive and discriminatory to whip up hatred against migrants in her defence. Well, you should see the emails I get from racists in my constituency. <laughs> <laughs> what, what I thought was hilarious was her going, these are very difficult words. They're not helpful. And I was like, not helpful for who? For you. You are my political opponent. That's fine by me. I mean, this is exactly the thing of playing to the gallery where she goes, well, look at what the gallery are actually saying. I mean, that, that doesn't mean that I'm wrong. It doesn't mean that we're not treating people who are fleeing war, persecution or poverty absolutely abominably and politicians are competing to, sa to sound toughest, right? 
you you can't get me on whether or not that's true. So instead, what you do is you just say I shouldn't be I I shouldn't be saying it at all. I just think that's an incredibly weak argument, and that's why I don't know. You could see the smirk on my face, Michael, because I just think it's deeply unserious. I think for all reasonable viewers, it came across as an unserious argument from that Tory MP, whose name I've forgotten already. So it is time to wrap up. Um, Ash, thank you so much for joining me tonight. Thank you for having me. And thank you, everyone, for watching. We'll be back tomorrow at 6pm. You've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.